Lord, we just ask that your presence continue to be here tangibly in our hearts and our lives um, as we just learn about you, as we learn about your presence. Lord, we just thank you for this time together. We just ask that it be a life-changing time as it already has been in your presence. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, I'm like, Holy Spirit is awesome, isn't he? I'm like having trouble talking here. He's good. Well, uh, welcome. <clears throat> but uh, Most of you uh, I've, are regulars here, so you know we're in the middle of the series on the Holy Spirit. And I wasn't quite sure what to call today's message, um, but I think this is an appropriate name because we're, mo we're moving on today. Uh, sorry, this is the last message on conversion. We've spent the last few times talking about the Spirit's role in Christian conversion. Um, and so uh, today I want to sort of tie a bunch of things together, kind of wrap up, hopefully clarify some things so that when we move on, uh, some of these loose ends that I've been uh, wanting to address and tie up will be addressed today. And so I'm talking about the Spirit and the Word. You know, if, you, if you've come here, you know how passionate we are about the Spirit. You know how passionate we are about the Word. And we want to be a people who, this is one of our values, who fully embrace the Spirit, who fully embrace the Word 100%. Because we, there's a false dichotomy, and this is an interesting thing throughout church history. There's always been this tension between spirit and word. And, and it, it's a false dichotomy because how many of you know the Bible is the Holy Spirit's book? I mean, he inspired the authors. Um, so it's a funny thing where people pit one against another in some ways. And it's like, if you haven't experienced it, the dynamic is such that people who uh, tend to be, this is generalizing now, into the Bible uh, are kind of skeptical about the spirit stuff. You know, and then the people who are into the spirit stuff, so to speak, are kind of skeptical about people who are really into uh, uh, the Bible. Not completely, but for instance, there's sort of a stigma towards seminary, for instance, and there's kind of a stigma towards an intellectual approach to the Bible, and there doesn't need to be. We need both. And in fact, if you go deep into the Word, you're gonna, that is going to actually uh, uh, strengthen your relationship with God because His book is His revelation about His character and who He is. And so it's such a blessing and a privilege to be able to uh, uh, go deep into His Word to get to know Him better. Um, and so all that to say, I'm kind of talking about this in regards to salvation, in regards to conversion specifically. Um, you guys may have heard me use the terminology a quest for the radical middle, and that's kind of where I'm what I'm go doing today in regards to this uh, concept of Christian conversion. Because on the path of life, always for most things, there's there's if, if the path of life represents a truth, there's ditches on either side of the path of life. And so what happens if you go too extreme? On one side of the truth, it actually becomes error. It actually becomes untruth. Uh, and, and what happens, and, and I think a perfect example of this, is legalism and lawlessness, right? Uh, since the inception of the church, we've uh, tended to one side or the other. And Trisha talked about this last week with Gnosticism. The irony of Gnosticism is that the dualistic idea of, of spirits good, matters bad, bodies bad, is one of two things. Either people go into licentiousness, 
because, hey, body uh, doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. And you see this error over and over again in the Bible uh, needed to be addressed. Or it can get into legalism, can get into ascetic practices where it's like I got to crucify my flesh, so to speak, in an ungodly way and like fast for a million years and sleep one hour a night. And you see this through church history. It's, it's interesting, uh, especially with the Desert Fathers. They did some extreme stuff where they would literally, so they wouldn't fall asleep, they would, be, they would go in a lake, so they would only sleep one hour a night um, for this reason, this dualistic sort of idea that, uh, that if I can crucify my flesh, uh, like, you know, and beat my body, I can become more spiritual. And so this heresy of Gnosticism has, so you see the path of life, there's two ditches in that, right? And so if, 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 you, if you're not careful... Um, if you, in this context, go too much, so you can, I, this is the thing, you can't go too much into the Word, you can't go too much into the Spirit, but if you pick one or the other over the other, you can get into error for sure. Okay, so if you're like, the key, I'll just say this, because i got to move on, the key is fully embracing both and keeping those truths in tension to stay in the radical middle. Not neglecting one and choosing one over the other. You need fully both. And keeping, holding those truths in tension. And so today I'm going to be talking about that in regards to salvation. Um, and I always give this introduction, but those of you who've been here know that uh, part of the reason I'm spending so much time on this series um, is, in my opinion, in my opinion can be wrong. You can totally disagree with me, but I think most of you would agree. If you just look at the book of Acts and you compare what they were walking in, relatively speaking, to what the contemporary church, generally speaking, is walking in, there's a difference. How many of you can see a difference? And it's that difference that I'm addressing. And it's that difference that I feel part of the issue is a relative neglect of the Holy Spirit. And you can see this in terms of the theological, uh, uh, in terms of theology, both in the pulpit and in, in uh, academics. Um, people will write volumes on Paul's theology and have like a page or two in the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is a fundamentally crucial part of Christian theology in the early church. So, of course, we give lip service to the Holy Spirit, but I'm talking a practical, experiential, th because the early church, right, they, they, they were Trinitarian at the core of their experience and their theology. They lived in the radical middle. And, and the problem is if we neglect the Holy Spirit, if we, people become skeptical, right, of this Holy Spirit stuff. As a function of us neglecting even speaking about him. And that's the thing, like, you, 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 you can go a long time without hearing even a message on the Holy Spirit. You might hear one on the day of Pentecost, but it, but, and I'm implicating myself here, too. There needs to be a more thoroughly... Uh, there needs to be more time spent on understanding the role of the Holy Spirit because he was at the very heart of our faith. Now, Christ is always the center. But the Holy Spirit is right next to Christ at the center of our faith. And we've missed a lot by neglecting him. And I think a lot of error uh, potentially we see these days is a function of us neglecting the Holy Spirit because as the Christian, as Christians, we are supposed to be living life in the spirit. 
That's it. That's, that's what the new covenant is all about. We're no longer under law. And we'll get into that more in the future, but this is such an important thing. And I've been, I've been kind of giving these general sort of three points here, um, talking about the center of New Testament theology. And we spent the first few messages as showing that the Spirit's the key to the quote-unquote eschatological framework, which is the key framework to understanding the New Testament. If you're interested, you can check those out. Um, but we've been really for the last several weeks talking about the Spirit as the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ, which is the central issue in the New Testament, salvation in Christ, okay? And, and so I've been spending a lot of time on that. And I talked a little bit, uh, one message in particular, we'll talk more about how the Spirit's the key of what it means for us to become the people of God. And you'll remember last time I spoke maybe that uh, I addressed that a little bit, but I'm going to move on. So, just to refresh our memory, whenever this, I, I made this statement just a few minutes ago that the early church were Trinitarian at the core of their experience in theology, okay? And so, if you look, it's a really interesting thing. I, I spent a message on this a few weeks ago that whenever Paul speaks, there's 25 scriptures, whenever Paul speaks about the salvation, he usually speaks about it in terms of God the Father initiating it. God always initiates our salvation. In fact, often it talks about how the love of God is the predicate of our salvation. So everything's predicated on the love of God. Everything, our entire existence. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Okay, so it's all predicated on the love of God, but the fact is he initiated, he sent his son. Okay, so Christ affected salvation historically. What does that mean? He's the one who historically accomplished our salvation. At one point of time, he was crucified. On the third day, he rose again to forever be our Lord. Now, that is, that is a crucial part of salvation. And, and uh, I can't emphasize that enough. But I want to say this. If, I was, if this series was a series on just salvation, I would spend probably a, a ton of sermons on that, on the historical work of Christ. I mean, come on, that's what it's all about. It's salvation in Christ. It's not salvation in the Spirit. But the point is, I'm, this series is on the Holy Spirit. So I'm emphasizing the role that the Spirit plays in salvation, okay? So I want to make that clear. That's why I'm not intentionally trying to neglect the fact that Christ uh, is a, absolutely, I mean, come on, salvation in Christ, fundamental part of salvation in the work he did on the cross. But as a function of me uh, addressing the Spirit's role. I hope that makes sense. That's why I'm talking about His role so much in this series in salvation. And what does the Spirit do? He's the one who effects salvation experientially in the individual life and in the church. Put another way, He's the one who appropriates the redemptive work of Christ in our lives. He's the one who affects what Christ has done on the cross experientially in our lives. Does that make sense? Okay, so the point is that salvation in Christ is not simply a theological truth based on God's prior action in the historical work of Christ. We are not Binitarian, we're Trinitarian. I say that facetiously, but the, but the fact of the matter is um, be, like I said, and I, you guys know it from the weeks you've been here, if you've been here, that the Holy Spirit's role in salvation almost completely gets neglected. 
again, I'm generalizing, you know. But, but you, you can hear a salvation message and not even hear about the Holy Spirit. That's not uncommon. And the fact of the matter is, whenever Paul talks and others in the New Testament writers talk about salvation, Holy Spirit's a crucial part of it. Crucial part of it. Absolutely crucial part of it. And so um, my point in, in this is saying, look, it's not just, see, we've made it all about a theological truth. Here's the 10 propositions. Do you mentally assent to that truth? Um, and if you do, okay, you're saved. But that's not the full story. The fact of the matter is salvation is an experienced reality, okay, made so by the person of the Spirit coming into our lives. Um, so you can't have the first two without the third. You cannot have salvation without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't exist, okay? And that's why I'm, I am spending so much time on this. Now, what, what I'm talking about today is that conversion has both an objective and subjective dimension to it. Now, um, if, if, that's, if you're like, what? I'm going to explain, so don't worry. But I just want to give an overview. This is what we're talking about today to, to help hopefully clarify some things um, and tie some things together that we've talked about in the past few weeks. So today I'm going to talk about the objective and subjective dimensions of salvation. Now, um, I'm also going to talk about this, how the Spirit plays an absolutely crucial role in the experience or the subjective dimension of salvation in Christ. And then we're going to show how the Spirit is the key to understanding Christian conversion and the implications for us today. So, what a, so the, again, I mentioned the quest for the radical middle, the Spirit and the Word <laughs> is how I'm putting it. Um, but for the early church, I, I mentioned this, the experience of the Spirit is a crucial part of Christian conversion, but... That's not the full picture either, okay? So was trusting in the truth of what Christ has done for us. In other words, trusting in his word, okay? So yeah, that is, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, that's crucial. I, I, if I was doing a series on the salvation, I'd spend a ton of time on that because that's an important part of it. That's the objective dimension of salvation. So conversion has both the objective reality that Christ has died on the cross, he rose again, and, on the, right? and because of that, we are saved if we believe, if we trust in that reality, okay? But there's also the subjective, which is the experiential dimension, and both are crucial for understanding Christian conversion. So first, I want to spend a couple minutes on the objective dimension, just to hopefully clarify what I'm talking about here. What do I mean? The positional expression of conversion. Jesus died on the cross, so now relationally with God, we're reconciled. We've been redeemed. We're children of God because of what Jesus has done. Positionally. You see what I'm saying? There's a positional uh, uh, place we have in God because of what Christ has done. That's the objective dimension, the positional expression. So on the one hand, Christ's death and resurrection has secured eternal salvation for those who believe. At conversion, this objective historical reality, right? Jesus came at one point in history and did this. This becomes an objective personal reality for the believer as well in terms of their position with God. So... You might have heard something like this hypothetically when someone gets saved... And, and this, this hypothetical example of, of, of the person who led them to the Lord might say, okay, how do you feel? And the person might be like, I'm feeling pretty good. I feel different. I feel real good. And the person might hypothetically say, good. 
But don't trust your feelings. Because trust in what Christ has done, trust in his word, the fact that because sometimes your feelings might not be there. And if your feelings aren't there, you have to trust in the fact that Jesus died and rose again and you're saved because of that. Does that make sense? That is the objective part of it. And that is, that is true and that is wise um, to, to mention that to people because you can't base it off just a feeling. Um, feelings might come, they might not, but the fact of the matter is Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're saved as a result. Okay? So that's the objective reality. So this objective historical reality is conveyed. Now, this is where I'm going with this, with different metaphors in Scripture. What are metaphors? Simply figures of speech. And a few weeks ago, and I have the link up here in a few slides, we talked all about the different metaphors of salvation because salvation is such a multifaceted concept. Um, there's a lot of, uh, one metaphor doesn't do justice. And for that reason, New Testament writers use a variety of metaphors to try and uh, uh, get at different facets of salvation. For instance, re redemption, uh, propitiation, justification, all of these words you see in the Bible that are all talking about salvation. Okay? So each of these metaphors emphasize a significant aspect of the believer's new relationship with God. And here's some examples of metaphors uh, used to describe salvation. Redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, justification. And we talked about, if you're interested, how each of these are used in context to describe a certain truth. So, for instance, justification is always, justification by faith is always in the context when he's talking about the Jewish law. Because it's a legal term. You're justified not by law, but by faith. Always in context, it's within the law. So when he's trying to make that argument that you're not justified by works, you're actually saved by faith, he uses this terminology. Um, what's another one here? Redemption. Redemption from what? That's a term that's in the context of slavery. You've been redeemed from sin. You've been redeemed from law. You've been purchased like a slave would be, right, from a, who is in slavery. So in context, he's using that as an imagery for what, what Christ did on the cross. Um, anyway, I, I'm going to move on, but I could, uh, I could... I'll give you one example here. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Talking about the objective dimension of salvation, okay? So, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled... There's another metaphor... To him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because we were God's enemies, we've been reconciled, right? You see that imagery. Um, and now we are reconciled to him. That we're no longer, he's, he's overcome that hostility. We've been reconciled. So if you're interested... Um, and I'm going to do this throughout because, like I said, I'm kind of tying a bunch of things together, and I'm going to make some allusions to past messages. If you're interested on July 30th, and if you get these notes, you can just click that link. Uh, the end time realities of salvation and the metaphors that express them. I talk all about this if you're interested, the metaphors. Now, the second component is this subjective dimension. And this is the experience of conversion. Okay? The experience so the beginning point of conversion also involves 
a subjective, personally experienced dimension that results in some radical changes in the believer. Okay? Now, the, the reason I've been talking about this dimension a lot in this series is because the Spirit plays the key role. That should be the key role in the subjective side of conversion. Okay? So just think subjective experiential. Okay? The experience dimension. And, but that's the word I'm going to be using for that. This can be shown in many ways, particularly through the various metaphors used to describe salvation. So I'm going to show you there's a distinction. And when Paul talks about the Christ's work within salvation, the metaphors he uses, and when he talks about the Spirit's role in conversion, the specific metaphors he uses, the ones he uses with Christ are the objective dimension. And don't worry, I'll show you this. And the ones he uses for the Spirit are always the experiential subjective dimension of salvation. Okay, so here we go. Now this is kind of what I'm pointing out here. Those examples I gave of the metaphors previously, these ones are some of the more common ones for salvation. Okay, so redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, justification. The interesting thing is they're, they're not really used in relation to the Spirit at all. They're always in relation to Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay, we received just, we've been justified by his blood. It's always in the context of the work of Christ. Why? And this is, this is what, why is that? Because these metaphors, if you think about it, emphasize the objective aspect of salvation. Dealing with the believer's position in Christ or relationship to God. So in other words, Jesus died and rose from the grave. And for that reason, for all time, this has happened. There's an objective reality within salvation. Um, it's the theology part of it. You see what I'm saying? It's not the experience. It's like this is a fact. You've been reconciled. You've been justified. You've... You've been uh, regenerate. Uh, that's not the right one. Anyway, uh, that's for the Spirit, but we'll get to that. So that's why these images, these metaphors, are always exclusively referring to Christ's saving work on our behalf, which is what we put our trust in, what Christ has did for us at one point in history. But when the New Testament writers use metaphors that emphasize the believer's experience of salvation, the Spirit is frequently mentioned. Here's some examples. Adoption, sanctification, washing, rebirth. Most of these, when, when I'm going to show you, when Paul's referring to the Spirit's work within salvation, he uses these types of metaphors. Okay? And they're the subjective dimension of salvation, the experiential. So I'm going to go through each of these just to show you. The, and distinguish the two. So the first one is adoption. Adoption to sonship. So here's Galatians 4, 4 to 6. Okay, I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to uh, uh, show you a couple things. So but when the set time had fully come, God, remember, God initiates, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. Remember, redemption that we might receive adoption to sonship. Positionally, we are children of God because what Jesus did, we're, right? Adoption. But look at this. Verse 6. Because you are his sons, 
God, remember, he initiates. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father, the experiential dimension, the Abba cry. We're God's children, and as a result of what Jesus did, and the fact that we're God's children, we cry out Abba Father by the spirit because he plays a role in the experience dimension of salvation, right? The subjective experience of salvation. So then he goes on. So you are no longer a slave, remember the context with redemption, but God's child. And since you're his child, God's made you also an heir, positionally. Now, I'm going to just pause and reiterate what I just said. Objective versus Distinction, distinction rather, of what Paul uses to distinguish objective versus subjective dimensions of salvation. Remember, I'm just using those terms, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. So in verse 5, he's talking about the objective dimension of salvation. Jesus Christ's act of redemption on the cross secured our adoption as sons. So in other words... An objective, once-for-all historical reality for everyone who would ever trust him. This is what happens. Now, in verse 6, the subjective dimension, the Spirit cries, Abba, which is the language of the Son. From within the heart of the believer. So this is the experiential side of the salvation, the work of God. Sonship is made real by the Spirit in the life of the believer. Okay? And I'm going to show you, look at now, we're going to talk, show you this. It says the same thing in a different way in Romans 8. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For those who are what? Led by the Spirit are the children of God. Isn't that interesting? He's a crucial part of this. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. The spirit you received at salvation does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received, look at this, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, experientially, we cry, Abba, Father. This, now look at this. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The subjective experience, you see that? He's the one who bears witness with our spirit subjectively that we're God's children. You see that? I hope this is making sense because I realize the terminology might be... But the experiential part of it, Abba, Father. The fact that when someone asks you, are you saved, what do you tell them? You know, like... It's a knowing. I can't explain it, but I know that I know that I know in my knower that I'm saved. That's the spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're his child. Subjectively, experientially. Now look at this, verse 17. Now if you're his children, then we're heirs. Look at the, I'm talking about the objective position now. You're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Positionally, you're co-heirs with Christ. Positionally, you're God's child. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. 
So the believers receiving of the Spirit is what makes them children, which is proved by the Abba cry <laughs> in our hearts. Now, just so you know, and most of you may know this, that Abba uh, is the language of infant, infancy, rather, in Aramaic. It's one of the first words that a child would learn, Abba. And uh, Emma, or Emma, is mother. But what's interesting, and this is what's different about this word. Now, I, I understand uh, people using the word daddy and so forth. But it's not a perfect, uh, uh, not a perfect translation, so to speak, in English to use that word. And why? Because this word was used for the whole lifetime. Okay? From childhood all the way till you're 80 years old, if your dad's still alive, you use this word Abba. We typically don't use daddy as adults, right? Um, or papa. Uh, usually that's just when you're an infant. Um, so it's, and also daddy has some weird connotations. I'll just leave it at that sometimes. You can, you can think about that if you want. At, or not, thank you. Or not, forget about it. But you see the difference. Abba, that was your whole life you call your papa Abba. And that was an endearing term that children of all ages would continue to use, expressing intimacy and special relatedness, experientially. So the experience of the Spirit leads the believer not only to a position of justification before God. Talking about that's the objective, yeah. But he also should lead to an ongoing awareness of the privileges of child, uh, child, uh, sorry, childhood personal relationship and companionship with God himself. For instance, Ephesians 2.18, you see this. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You guys remember 2 Corinthians 13.14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and what? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The three roles of the Trinity, you see that. The fellowship, the experiential dynamic relationship of intimacy you have. With God the Father through his Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 5 is talking about salvation, but it says that hope does not disappoint for what? He shed abroad his love into your hearts by what? The Holy Spirit whom he's given you. In other words, you experience God's love through his Spirit. Experientially. Talking about the experiential subjective dimension of salvation. Sanctification. Again, we're just going through different metaphors to show you this. Sanctification is another metaphor for salvation. And I want to say this. Paul's primary use of this word is a metaphor for salvation. Why, do I, why am I emphasizing that? It's not a reference to a work of grace following conversion, which in my life, that's how I've always heard it. Do you guys know what I'm saying? You're being sanctified. No. You were sanctified. One time in, because of what the Spirit did at conversion, and I'll show you this. Notice the experience of salvation, and I'll show you a couple verses, is brought about by the sanctification of the Spirit. It's always the Spirit who sanctifies, experientially. Look at this. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, talking about salvation. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Remember, the love of God. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved, what? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see that? It's actually talking about salvation. 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth, the radical middle, you got the Spirit, you got the Word, belief in the truth, the actual experiential subjective dimension of sanctification through the Spirit. So this image, just so you know, like if you didn't know, is drawn from Jewish religious practices where the sacred rites and the utensils used in the temple have been sanctified by God. What does that mean? It means set apart solely for God's holy purposes. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart for the use of God's holy, right? You've been made holy. The Gentile, now this is what's interesting. He's talking, usually, and I'm going to show you this, usually in the context of Gentiles. The Gentiles receiving the Spirit was God's ultimate act of creating for himself a sanctified offering that includes both Jew and Gentile. Look at this, Romans 15 15 and 16. Yet I've written, this is Paul, yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of what? Proclaiming the gospel to God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If you guys remember last week, I mentioned this, but you see this in the book of Acts. You just read Acts 10, and, you know, at that time, they still had this idea that Jews were God's people and Gentiles were still second-class citizens. Uh, And they didn't even realize salvation would go to them until one day Peter goes to Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles while he's preaching to them. I'm giving you the short paraphrase version. Speaking in tongues, and they're perplexed. They're like, what? The Gentiles are receiving the Spirit? In other words, that's the, that's the evidence they've been saved. They are saved? They can be saved? The Spirit's on them. That's crazy. And then when they went back to Jerusalem, they're all mad at Peter. Like, you're eating in the house of a Gentile? What? You're breaking the law, in other words. Peter's like, guys, you would not believe what happened. This is crazy. I was on the roof praying, and God gives me this vision, and these unclean animals are coming down, and he's saying, eat these things. And I'm like, no, God, I don't eat those things. God's like, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Talking about the Gentiles. He made us clean. He sanctified us for his holy purposes. And it's the Spirit's work that does it. So when you receive the Spirit, you are made holy you are set apart to be used for God's holy purposes. And it's the Spirit's work who does it. Now in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he uses this word as well. In context, he's using this imagery to emphasize that conversion includes the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which prohibits the behavior they engage in as pagans. You just read 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see what I mean. He lists all these things, he's like... You know, idolaters, the greedy, the sexually immoral, the drunkards, whatever, whatever. He says, and that's what some of you were, past tense. But you were, past tense, sanctified. Notice it's not an ongoing. You were sanctified at the moment of conversion by the Spirit of our God. Now, I have dot, dot, dot there. I'll show you the full reference in a minute. You were sanctified. You're made holy. You're set apart for God's holy purposes. And as a result, you no longer participate in these pagan activities because you are no longer uh, ungodly pagan. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. 
metaphors. Washing, rebirth, and giving life. These are the last three I'm going to show you today. Talking about the subjective dimension of salvation and the Spirit's role in it. Now, I'm going to show you this one verse. This verse is an amazing verse. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's essentially a creed talking about salvation. It's an amazing thing. It has all the stuff. Okay? So verse 4. But when the kindness, look at this, and love of God. Remember, it's all predicated on God's love. And he initiates it. Our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Now look at this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously. I love that. Generously, lavishly poured out on us. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. You got the Trinity here. So that having, look at this, then you get the positional. So that having been justified, the objective reality, by his grace, we may become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You see that? So when Jesus is meant to talk about justification, talking about becoming an heir, talking about the position you have with God, objective dimension of... Re- but when he's talking about the work of the Spirit, washing, renewal, rebirth, regeneration by the Spirit, the subjective experiential side of things. Okay? So, so I'm, I'm going to just hit on that. He saved us... Oh, notice he describes conversion by emphasizing but what, what happened to the believer. This is what happened to you when you were saved. God saved them through the washing and renewing work of the Spirit. That's the subject. Like, he literally washed us. He actually applied what Jesus did. Not only are you technically forgiven, technically speaking, you're not just, you're not just forgiven, you're not just a sinner saved by grace who goes on sinning. No, the Spirit actually washed you of those sins. And you've been reborn. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, so you're, you're, that's done with. That's the old way of doing You're now a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. Because the Spirit literally washed you, experientially, subjectively. So in other words, he poured out his spirit generously on us, and through him we experience washing, rebirth, and renewal. And I love this. This lavish, and I'm talking about the experience now. Just think of the, 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 the imagery, generously. He poured out generously his spirit upon you when you were saved. Um, he uses this kind of language, uh, this lavish experience of the spirit in other passages, like uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I love this. <laughs> He's talking about Jew and Gentile now, but he says, for we were all baptized in one spirit. That's like a lavish, baptism means full immersion. You were fully, fully, fully immersed in spirit when you were saved. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And look, you were all given one spirit to drink. It's like this imagery of being just totally satiated. Like, yeah, I'm full of the spirit. Drink in the spirit. Come on now. We're at, how many of you are heavy drinkers of the Spirit here? Come on. <laughs> but I just love this imagery Paul uses. This lavish. Talking about the experience of the Spirit. It's not like, oh, I'll give you a drop. You know, here's a drop of the Spirit. God's like, Phew, pour it out generously, lavishly, baptized. You know, it's like, yeah, love it. Washing. Okay. 
I'm going to just show, I showed you Titus, but look, 1 Corinthians 6.11, here's the full verse now I alluded to earlier. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the name of Jesus Christ there means the authority, by the authority of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's the one who literally experientially washed you when you were saved and sanctified you. So washing here in context is the washing away of sin, particularly those mentioned in verses 9 and 10. If you're interested, read them. Idolatry, all that crap. Or stuff, sorry. The Spirit... But, but the point, the Spirit is the means of that cleansing. He's the one washing you of that stuff, right? That's what it's saying. Now, now I want to say this again. I'm saying different things in different ways, repeating for on purpose to hopefully make this clear. Becoming a believer in Christ is not simply that we have been given a new standing in God. Okay? In other words, redeemed, forgiven, justified. But that we are also washed by the Spirit which includes rebirth and renewal. You see that? The experiential dimension of salvation and the Spirit plays a crucial role in it. All of these are put into effect by the Spirit. All these metaphors, all these images that literally happens at salvation. So but by the Spirit, God cleanses people from past sins. He appropriates the atoning work of Christ. Yeah, we're forgiven because of what Jesus did, but the Spirit comes and actually literally washes you of that sin. By the Spirit, God also transforms them into his people, reborn, renewed, to reflect God's likeness in their lives. That's where the imagery of rebirth comes from. You see that, so rebirth, the word is sometimes translated in Titus, their regeneration, okay? But it's that idea of rebirth, like renewal, Uh, the point, a radical change takes place at conversion. That's what it's saying. You're, you're different. <laughs> you're a new creation in Christ. The old's gone, the new's come. All these images of the new, the new, okay? It means a complete reorientation of our entire lives. You're a brand new thing, person, <laughs> creation, whatever. <laughs> but this reorientation is directly tied to the work of the Spirit. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. You guys know this. John, this is Jesus now. John 3, verse 3. He says, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless what? They're born again. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Then he elaborates. Unless they're what? Born of the water and of the Spirit. You're born again by the Spirit. He's the one who creates this new life in you, experiential. You become a new person by the Spirit's work at salvation. Galatians 4.29. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, he's talking about Ishmael, persecuted the son, Isaac, born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. <laughs> he's using that analogy. He's saying, born by the power of the Spirit, that's what you are. The church of Galatia. You're, the believers of Galatia, you are born by the Spirit. And in fact, if I had time, he talks with the children of promise. He's actually talking about the Holy Spirit there. If you look at Galatians 3.14, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that, right, you become children of Israel and uh, you've inherited the blessing 
given to Abraham, and then he says the promise of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about, the promised Holy Spirit. Because if you remember back in the day when I talked about all these promises of a new covenant have to do with this, the Spirit. God will put, he'll make a new covenant with you and put the Spirit in your heart. So that's what they're expecting, the Spirit to come back. That was the evidence that the new covenant was here. So all the metaphors of before and after, you see this imagery again and again, speak in the same way of the radical transformation of the life that the Spirit brings. For example, death and life, old person, new person, darkness and light, and so on and so on. All this imagery the Spirit brings them about. And this is the last one I want to talk about, giving life. The living God is a life-giving God. <laughs> He's the living God. So, of course, right, when he, whatever he touches turns to life, becomes alive. Right? He breathed into, he breathed into Abraham, not Abraham, sorry, Adam, and Adam became a living being. Now, during conversion, believers receive the spirit of life, and he gives life to those who turn to Christ, experientially, literally. What happens to the believer is death of flesh, of sin, of law, and the resurrection by the life-giving spirit. So I'm just going to give you a few examples here. Romans 8, 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit, look, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is what? Life and peace. The life-giving spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Look at this. For the letter kills, talking about the old covenant, but the Spirit gives life. Romans 7, 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Galatians 5, 24 to 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we what? Live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the key to the Christian walk. We'll be talking about that in the future because we're moving on from conversion in the weeks ahead. So conversion involves walking in the newness of life by the Spirit. Believers are brought to life now and forever by the coming of the life-giving Spirit. And that life manifests itself in the radically new life of God given by the Spirit. So I want to say this again. Christians are not whitewashed sinners. Okay? And we're like still sinful, but we're justified before God anyway, right? Positionally. And you hear that precisely because the experiential subjective dimension of salvation has been neglected. Right? So here's, here's the 10 propositions of our faith. Do you believe it? Yes, I mentally assent to it. You're saved. You go on sinning, no transformation, no life change. Why? Because a huge part of salvation is missing. Have you actually been born again? Have you actually received the life of the Spirit? Has He actually renewed and regenerated you when you were saved? It's not just a mental... You see what I'm saying? Talking about the radical middle. Yeah, that is important. Putting your trust in the... But did the Spirit come and make you a brand new person? Did you receive the Spirit, is how Paul asks it in Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? It's his way of asking, were you saved? That's why the Spirit's so important. And was so important to the early church's understanding of Christian conversion and in the entire Christian life. The Spirit, 
He goes on to ask, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, you finish by the same way you started, which is by the Spirit. So just to show you the, oh, yeah, I'll just go on. Here you go. Actually, I'm going to say that last sentence because it's important, but you don't have to go back, Jennifer, if you don't want. Christians who come to Christ are invaded by the life-giving Spirit who both applies the redemptive work of the cross and transforms us within. You see how crucial the Spirit is in all of this. So here's just a summary of the different metaphors we talked about today. Um, showing you on the left the objective dimension of salvation. Remember, that's the believer's position or relation to God through Christ's work. So you got redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, justification, and adoption, the positional part of it. You become children. The subjective dimension is the believer, uh, the person's experience of salvation, washing, sanctification, rebirth, renewal, and so forth. And if you're interested, a long time ago, not that long ago, July 9th, I, I talked all about the other metaphors of the Spirit. Down payment, the seal. You want to go to the next slide? Sorry. Uh, 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 the first fruits and the implications of that. If you're interested, there's the link. Uh, is that on, not on there? The next, the one after the graph? Yeah. Um, the spirit is the evidence of the presence of the future. You can check that out if you're interested in hearing more about this. What should we do in light of all this? <laughs> how, this is how I want to end today. Because, um, first of all, the summary. Salvation of Christ is both an objective and subjective dimension. The atoning work of Christ is applied by the Spirit in, the, in Christian conversion. So in other words, the Spirit is the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ. Now the question that I want to address is this. Does this mean that people who come to faith in Christ but did not have an experiential realization of the Spirit's presence fall short of biblical faith? And I have no in highlight, uppercase, exclamation mark, underline. <laughs> no. Okay? Um, experience, I'm, I've come to realize, has a lot of connotations to it. And I need to tell you, what I'm not saying is it, it doesn't need to look like some crazy, drunken, Holy Spirit on the ground, shaken thing. And, and I, I think people hear me say that. It's like, if it doesn't look like Toronto did in 94, you're not saved. No way. No, am I not saying that. No, no, no. I don't want you to question your salvation because you might be like, oh, I didn't have this specific thing, have this specific experience happen. Therefore, are you saying I'm not saved? No, I'm definitely not saying that. Okay? Uh, I just want to make that clear. All of us who trust in Christ for salvation have received the Spirit. Clearly, in a Bible, the Bible says, if you believe, if you, Jesus is Lord, you receive the Spirit. Even if the coming of the Spirit was more quiescent, even if it was subtle, even if it was, if you remember, we talked about conviction of sin is the work of the Spirit. That's a subjective experiential reality. Were you convicted that you needed to be saved? Yeah, Spirit, right? It's the Spirit. So, so even if it wasn't a dramatic encounter, and believe me, I, I, I'm a huge advocate of dramatic encounters, um, it doesn't mean you're not saved. I hope that makes sense, okay? And, and I don't want to put that in a box. It doesn't have to be a specific, because there doesn't have to be a specific feeling. 
Now, feelings are great, confirmation, but it's not necessary. So all of us who, yeah, I already said that. Remember, uh, yeah, I said the conviction of sin. Revelation of the gospel comes from the Spirit. So if you got a revelation, that's true. Christ died for my sins and he rose again. That's the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 6, 6 uh, 12. Um, uh, Belief in the gospel is the Spirit. He's the one who produces the faith, the same faith that you receive the Spirit by. He produces that, and we talked about that last time. And the Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And that's, a, that's the basic Christian confession. You see that in Romans 10. If you say Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that he's raised on the third day, you'll be saved. That's by the Spirit. So if you've done those things, that's the Spirit's work in your life. But, the, but it's the Spirit doing it in you, okay? Affecting all of those things so that you become saved and receive the Spirit. I, I have, sorry, Trish, I didn't, but I didn't run this by you. But to, just an example, my conversion experience is so different from Trisha's, it's not even funny. Do you know how I was saved? I was at, at the church, uh, Trisha was talking about earlier, uh, Church of the Rock in Winnipeg, and I go there for the, it's a long story, but the long story short, I go there for the first time, preaches a message, at the end, does anyone want to get saved, raise your hands, close your eyes, I did it. I just felt, Holy Spirit, yeah, this is the time. I'm like, okay, I did it. And made the confession, prayed the prayer. That was it. Nothing crazy. Like, I didn't fall down. It's just conviction, man, I got to do this. I got to come. Pretty simple. Trisha, on the other hand, how much should I say? In San Francisco, uh, which I don't know what to say. In San Francisco, uh, Dramatic encounter. <laughs> As you can imagine, I'm just, you can put two and two together. On a hill, um, Jesus appears to her. Because she was in not, <laughs> she was not at a church service. <laughs> okay? I'll just put it that way. She was not at a church service. And Jesus appears to her. You can hear her testimony online, actually. We have it as, yeah. Dramatic. Totally, totally delivered from smoking, from drugs, from everything like that. Bam. Not anything like mine. That's like Paul the Apostle kicked off a horse, the risen Lord appears kind of thing. But nonetheless, right, we're, we both came to Christ. I didn't have that kind of crazy encounter in San Francisco. Okay? <laughs> So, so people's experience of salvation doesn't need to look a certain way to be genuine. There's no formula. And that is so important. There's no formula. That's why I love the book of Acts, okay? The book of Acts has so many different uh, pictures of salvation, and they're different. They're all different. There's no formula. Like, as soon as you think there's a formula, then he flips it. Like, you know, people say you have to be baptized after you're saved. Or no, you see the Spirit after you're baptized. And then, and then what happens in Acts 10, Peter's preaching, and they, he doesn't even finish his salvation message, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're speaking in tongues and prophesying. He's like, whoa, I guess we should baptize them, <laughs> right? It's like there's no formula. It's okay. God's just like, I'm going to show up this way for these people, okay? So, so this experience, when I use this concept of experience, it's a, whole, it's a lot broader than just feelings. Feelings can be a part of it, but it's more than that, Okay? 
the experiential aspect can look different for different people, but Scripture shows us that something happens. Something happens at salvation. I hope you can see that with the metaphors we talked about earlier. You were washed. You were reborn. Something happens. Now, I want to say this. Many times in Scripture, people, people's salvation experience was dramatic. I don't want to undermine that because it was in the book of Acts. It was often visible, outwardly, dramatic. Often there was a prophetic utterance that would come like tongues or prophecy or whatever. And that was the evidence to them that they received the Spirit. Like in Acts 10, whoa, they're speaking in tongues like we did. They're saved. They got the Spirit, that means. Now, unfortunately, people take that and say, okay, now you need to speak in tongues or else you're not saved. No way. Because look at this. Ethiopian eunuch. This probably looks more like what's more common these days. Um, Philip goes. The eunuch went down to the river. They, were baptized, they baptized him. Then when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. I wonder what the eunuch thought. Like, Where did that guy go? <laughs> okay. And the eunuch didn't see him again. But look at this. But he went away rejoicing. That was it. Rejoicing. It's like, yeah, I, I'm saved. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't some like he's... Crazy, at least not that we know of. Maybe it was crazy, but it doesn't say it was crazy. Like, there's no tongues or anything. Um, so what I want to say with that being said now, the biblical evidence suggests that the first century conversion was a much more experiential reality, visible, dramatic, and evidential than what we commonly see today, at least in the West. Why is that? And that's the million-dollar question. Why is that? And I'm going to give you a couple of opinions of mine that I think might explain it. One of the reasons I think we don't see it as much anymore is this. Probably has a lot to do with their expectations and our lack thereof, relatively speaking. Okay? So remember, if you remember way back in April, April 2nd, I actually, the first message in this series was our, the importance of what? Raising our expectations. Because... Faith is synonymous with expectancy. If we do not expect it, how many know it's probably not going to happen? Because we don't have the, that means we don't have the faith for it. Why? Part of it, I believe, is the relative neglect that this is what happens. This is what's normal. If we expected these dramatic encounters to happen and had faith for when people were saved, I guarantee you it would happen. In fact, I guarantee you it would happen more. Now, if you're interested, April 2nd, uh, The Importance of Shameless Audacity, you can check that out. So we need to expect the Spirit to come in power like the early church. They expected it. Remember, whenever the Spirit's mentioned, Spirit and power go hand in hand <laughs> in the Bible, over and over again. And when Paul preaches, it was what? Proclamation, demonstration of the Spirit's power. Second, or 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5, I came to you not with wise and persuasive words, but what? With a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That's how they did it. That's how they rolled. He expected it. Because look at his encounter. It was so dramatic with the risen Lord. It's like, I just expect people, when they get saved, this crazy thing's going to happen, the Spirit's going to... And that's what happened. They just expected it. Now, if you're interested, <laughs> I talked all about this in May 28th, Spirit Ministry Power versus Still Small Voice, because we expect... Usually, the Spirit comes in the still, small voice, the quiescent. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they expected dramatic power, crazy, fire, tongues, whatever. 
Okay? You know, it's just what they expected. And, I, I, and that's why faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. That's why I'm spending so much time with this. I want to raise our expectations. This is what's normal biblical Christianity. Let's expect it now. Let's believe that God's going to come in this way. And people, people are going to be radically transformed. Because you know what? Um, these were conversion in the first century sense were converts from paganism Christianity, okay? They had no grid for, like, the Jewish Old Testament. Like, like, there was uh, sexual morality. There's nothing wrong with the stuff we're doing, the sex and all this drugs and rock and roll. Um, that was just normal. They didn't even think that was a moral issue. And, and we're so hard on people like the Corinthians, like, oh, look at these carnal Christians. No, guys, you have to realize they were, they were total pagans, <laughs> you know, they're like, and they, Paul had to just reorient, guys, this is wrong, like, you can't just go on doing this stuff, and they're like, that's wrong, oh, why can't I go to the temple and have sex with prostitutes, and Paul's like, guys, no, don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, like, I'm just saying, they had no grid for it being wrong, okay, does that sound familiar, I mean, look at our culture, I mention this a lot, but our culture is so similar in a lot of ways to first century culture there in Roman paganism that this is the approach we got to take. Power encounter, because the intellectual uh, uh, human wisdom is not going to work anymore. Here's the 10 propositions. Do you want to come to Christ? They'd be like, Pfft. Post-Christian, post-post-Christian, post-post-modern, all relative, whatever you believe is right. No. You want, you want me to, to show you? Uh, bam! <laughs> Holy Spirit, come. Bam! Experiential encounter. Argue with that. You can't. And then their life is changed. That's what it takes. Okay? That's what it takes these days. So the other reason is for some people it might be related to second generation Christians. I want you to think about this. How many of you uh, came from a Christian home? Grew up in a Christian home? Your parents were Christians? Okay, the majority of us. I want you to think about this. Paul's converts were all first-generation converts. All of them. It's an interesting thing. All of his letters are for people who had no grid for any of this. They weren't Christian. They weren't pastor's kids. <laughs> There's no letter in the Bible to second-generation Christians. It would be interesting if there was, wouldn't it? Because we almost have no clue as second-generation Christians, like, how does this apply to us? Because we're not pagans. You know, we grew up, in, and you hear that a lot. I grew up, as, as far as I can remember, believing in Jesus is a lot of people's testimony. So when did I receive the Spirit? Right? Now, what I want to say about that is this. If you think about it, why is it that when the Gospels preached and evangelistic crusades are in other countries where they're first-generation Christians, does this stuff happen all the time? You hear that question. Why is it happening in Africa where these miracle signs, wonders, power encounters, but it's not happening here? First generation Christians. I think that has a lot to do with it. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the expectations, absolutely, the expectations, but not only that, it's like in the West, it's so common that we come from a Christian background, a lot of us. Or at least we have a grid for it. But for people who are pagans, and they're like, hey, guys, I'm following this demon god. That's not what they say, hypothetically. And he's pretty powerful. Elijah encounter. Yeah, but my god is the god, and he can crush your god in a second. I'll prove it. Bam. Whoa. Okay. Right? 
power encounter with the living God. That's what it takes in those cultures. But I'm saying that's, I think, why it's partially normal as well. More normal in other cultures. But the good news is this. Even if we've not begun in this way, regardless if you're second generation Christian or not, even if your experience of salvation was like mine and, and it was like, yeah, I'm saved, I believe it, um, there's, we can all, always still enter into this more experienced dimension of the Spirit. Always, always, always. There's always more. In fact, it wasn't five years later, five and a half years later before I had a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, after I was saved. That changed my life. That's why I'm a huge advocate of it. I know, like Trisha, totally crazy change. Power encounter with the Holy Spirit. My point, even if you've never experienced the Holy Spirit and you've been saved for like 50, 40, 50 years and is pretty quiescent and you kind of feel goosebumps sometimes, I'm just hypothetical, and you're like, I've never had that, never spoken in tongues, whatever. You can all, that was what my first message was all about raising our expectations, asking, seeking, knocking. Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? All we need to do is ask. And we believe it. We're huge, huge, huge on, hey, you can totally, totally have this. The Holy Spirit is no respecter of person. There's no reason why you can't experience him. Now, it doesn't have to look like uh, bubbly Trisha laughing on the ground. Well, I just say that because you guys know Trisha. Um, it can look like anything, you know? It doesn't have to look a certain way is my point, but there's always more. And we love going for the more. We love it. Catch the fire, is that's what we love. <laughs> Come on, okay? So that's what I want to end on, though. My conviction is because our culture is so similar to the first century, we have to get back to this because the biblical paradigm of salvation is experiential, outward, visible, typically crazy encounters. And, and you guys know this from past messages I, uh, that I've spoken about, okay? This is presuppositional to the early church in Paul's letters, book of Acts. But how? Raise our expectations that this experiential dimension of Christ can be the common experience once again. And I guarantee you, if we expect that and we go out and preach the gospel to this culture that tends to be pretty pagan, that we're going to see a lot of fruit, just like no less than the early church did. That's what we have to get back to. And I guarantee you God's going to do it. Guarantee you. That's why I'm just laying the foundation with theology, with biblical understanding. So when it happens, when it happens, not if, when it happens, and the Spirit comes crazy, <laughs> we can help people. We can help, hey, this is biblical. <laughs> you know, the, and, and oh, like that helps people sometimes who need a biblical foundation. Okay, so I'm just building it and believing it's going to be awesome. And it already is. Thank you. I mean, come on, the Holy Spirit was so present earlier when Trisha, remember that? I mean, come on, but there's always more. Always more. So, Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your presence. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your amazing uh, uh artistic ways of just revealing yourself to us, your creative ways of expressing yourself in and through us and revealing yourself to us. And Lord, I just ask for each and every one here that you would reveal yourself to us in a new and exciting way, that, that we would have some kind of experiential revelation that, that, <laughs> that, whoa, that we haven't experienced yet, whoa, that would make us fall more in love with Jesus. That would make us fall more in love with you. 
that it would just enhance, <laughs> enhance our walk in the Lord. And that our lives would be transformed as a result of it. That our lives would be 180 degrees transformed on fire for you as a result. We thank you, Lord, that <laughs> your kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we just ask your kingdom to come right now in Jesus' name. And that people would just receive that. Receive that joy of the Lord. Receive that peace that surpasses understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ. Lord, that you would just come, Holy Spirit. And just move mightily in our midst, in our individual lives, in our hearts, and corporately. That we would be such an amazing example to this world that they would encounter the living God and know that you are so real because of this experiential dimension, this revelation that you are alive and you live forevermore to be our God. In Jesus' name, amen.